Hello, welcome to the Ideas Sleep Furiously podcast. I'm Matt Archer. The reason you cannot see me if you are a regular subscriber and you're just wondering where the video is, well, that's because I'm currently in Oxford filming some special interviews and I forgot to film the introduction to this podcast, so I'm doing this via audio only. We will, I assure you, return to regular scheduled video very shortly. But today I have the honour of speaking with Jonathan Rose. I have wanted to speak to Jonathan for a long time now. He is the William R. Kennan Professor of History at Drew University. He has held visiting appointments at the University of Cambridge and Princeton University. He reviews books for the Times Literary Supplement and the Daily Telegraph in the UK. His fields of study are mainly British history, intellectual history, and the history of the book. And we mainly talk about his magnum opus, which is The Intellectual Life of the British Working Classes. That's the title of his book, which I think came out in 2003, and there's a new edition out now. That book won many prizes. Uh, first and foremost, the Jacques Barzun Prize in uh, Cultural History, the Longman History Today Historical Book of the Year Prize, and the British Council Prize. In the book, Jonathan revealed that the British working classes were far more well-read than had previously been thought. I think this is also true with the American working classes, if you've listened to Noam Chomsky talk about factory girls. And we do talk about Noam Chomsky in this interview, because Noam is a very big fan of Jonathan's work. Um, it wasn't at all uncommon to find a Welsh miner reading Shakespeare and Milton, or a weaver reading a translation of the Odyssey. Workmen paid boys to read to them. There were mutual improvement societies and book clubs. All of this has mostly been forgotten outside the realm of academia. And the advent of the TV and the smartphone is probably to blame for that. But it's a piece of history that we desperately need to hear about and rekindle. We need to learn these lessons and we need to learn what caused the decline. Uh, I speak to Jonathan about education and what he's learnt about an ideal education system after reading and being immersed in so much intellectual history, and specifically the history of ordinary people's own reading habits and how they made immense efforts to educate themselves in the traditional canon. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I found it immensely rewarding. And as I say, I think it's something that everybody needs to learn about. So without further ado, I give you the wonderful Professor Jonathan Rose. Okay, Jonathan, well, thank you for coming on to the podcast. I wanted to basically start with your own biography, perhaps your own educational journey. I will have given you a biography previously, but perhaps in your own words, you can say how you came to be a professor of, well, intellectual history, really. Well, my, my original goal was to be a professor of intellectual history in the sense of uh, high ideas, great books, and so on. Um, I was going to graduate school in the 1970s. And at that point, of course, social history was very much the going thing. And social historians criticized intellectual historians, not without reason, for being elitist. I mean, we're discussing these uh, a, few, a few dead white males and they're talking to each other. Uh, what about the great mass of ordinary people? This was a criticism we had to deal with. Uh, and that drove me inevitably toward the history of reading. Uh, in other words, who's reading all these, all these great authors and how are they responding to them? Uh, is their audience indeed an elite audience or is it a much more popular audience? And uh, I found myself in doing graduate work at the University of Pennsylvania and I had to take a course in uh, social history and wasn't really at home there. 
and had to pick out a, a, a paper topic. Uh, so I decided I would write on uh, the uh, British working class audience for classic literature. And I wrote a paper on it and then my professor sent it back, drenched in red ink. Uh, it was not very good, but I resolved that I would someday come back to this topic and explore it in more depth. And of course, eventually I did. And that started me off in, um, uh, in this new direction in intellectual history. So you wrote, when, did, when do you start writing the book? Well, you could say I started. I started writing it my first year in. Started germinating, but but uh, really seriously, it was after I uh, finished my first book, which is a kind of conventional history, uh, intellectual history of Edwardian Britain, called the Edwardian Temperament, and that came out in 1986. So at that point, I started writing the next book uh, over the several years, which became the intellectual life of the British working classes. And could you just speak about your? where you think this interest came from, this motivation to delve into this particular part of history. I know you, you say it was, it's kind of, um, it wasn't necessarily the history that people were writing or talking about at the time, but was there anything more to it than that? There, there, there was, and that was, of course, this was a time when the traditional canon literature was under attack. Uh, uh, again, a, a, a very, being very elitist. And I felt that that was in many ways misguided. Uh, I thought that um, uh, uh, this kind of literature, in fact, many, in many respects, transcended class, certainly in terms of its audience, and could be liberating for readers of all class, including or even especially uh, the more disadvantaged classes, precisely because they were denied so much agency, denied, denied education, and uh, uh, the, as a result, the great books had real scarcity value for them, and enabled them to take control of their own lives to think for themselves. And these are people who have to take orders basically all their lives, you know. So um, uh, in that sense, I did have a mission in, uh, in, in, in pursuing this. And uh, uh, I hope it, um, uh, I, I was able to communicate, I think some valuable lessons about uh, some of the assumptions we have concerning ordinary readers, which may not be at all valid. So, I guess a few questions kind of pop out here. One, would you would you then call yourself a revisionist historian? And two, how well known? I guess it kind of plays into the first question. How well known was? Uh, what, what, well, were at least parts of this history. So, for example, you mentioned the fact that you knew back then that the canon was at least appreciated and probably read by. Um, the working class. So what was this known at least by historians, by intellectual historians, and it was just kind of disregarded? Well, I don't, I don't think it was widely known. I think actually the, the, the prevailing assumption was that they, they were, uh, uh, the masses didn't read this kind of literature. And um, uh, as I say, social historians discounted that possibility. So what I tried to do was not to simply dismiss social history, not at all, but to adopt the methods of social history and then apply them to intellectual history. In other words, what do ordinary people in their ordinary lives read on everyday basis? And how does it affect what their, what their, their lives? Um, so, uh, and that I felt was the future that, that intellectual history should move into. Um, the, um, uh, yes, I, I would consider myself a revisionist historian because first of all, it's great fun. Uh, there's no point in just saying what other people, other historians have already said in the past. Uh, I think you have to try to be original. 
in some ways, you know, there's the that famous play, The History Boys, and there's a character based, I guess, on Neil Ferguson, who is constantly pushing the students to uh, take an unconventional approach to history. And he's actually the villain in the play, but I viewed him as the hero. Uh, because I think that's what a, what a professor should always try to make his students do, uh, to uh, uh, take the same information, the same history, but perhaps view it through a different kind of lens. That's fantastic. So what were your thoughts then when, I assume maybe you were an undergraduate or a graduate student student reading someone like E.P. Thompson? I... I, I, I... <laughs> Barely got through his book, you know, the, the, uh, the Making an English Working Class. Uh, I, I did find it hard going. I felt that he did not grant enough agency to these workers. I felt he did not so much respect their point of view. I felt he was too dismissive of the religious tradition, especially Methodism, uh, which he, he viewed as a kind of neurotic and repressive religion. And I tended to take a more, I, I think, more balanced view and say, well, yeah, there were certainly puritanical elements of it but it did mobilize the working classes. It did allow them to organize their own chapels. And if you learn how to organize a chapel, you can organize a, a trade union. You can organize a political party. It made them more articulate. And I think uh, Methodism inculcated the ethic of self-improvement and especially improving your mind. So in that sense, uh, the, um, uh, it had a very positive legacy. And let's face it, most of the founders of the Labour Party were lapsed Methodists who, who said, you know, I, I don't accept all of the old religion, but I also think it did a lot, a lot for me. Uh, I take from it what I think is valuable. And in that sense, yes, I, I, uh, I think Methodism served a very positive purpose. For listeners that might not be aware, uh, could you just give a brief overview of what Methodism is? Well, Methodism was the original evangelical movement founded by John Wesley. Uh, in the uh, in, in the mid 1700s, it was designed originally to reform the Church of England from within, but eventually broke away and set up its its own church. And it emphasized, uh, amongst other things, well, for the evangelical impulse. You just you just don't tend to your parish. You go out and bring the word of God to everyone all around the world. Okay, um, you um, uh, there is no predestination. You can achieve salvation through your own, own free will by, by accept, accepting Jesus. And um, uh, you can organize this church on your own behalf. You don't have to sit in the back of a pew in a Church of England you know, uh, church and listen to whatever the Oxford Cambridge educated uh, uh, priest is telling you. Uh, uh, it, it does, it places much more emphasis upon, upon, upon uh, the, the initiative of the working classes. And I think for that reason, it was very attractive to many working class Britons, especially in the 19th century. Uh, and uh, some would say that it prevented a revolution in Britain because rather than gravitate to atheist philosophies, they instead, the radicals gravitated to a basically Christian movement, uh, which accepted uh, uh, Christianity. And maybe that's true. It also, I think, mobilized uh, the working classes and, and, and made them politically active and intellectually active. Uh, yes, early Methodism could be puritanical. They frowned upon uh, secular literature. But as we move forward in time, that kind of puritanism fades away. And we find Methodists more and more embracing all the great books, you know, and, and, and promoting self-education. So in that sense, I think it was on the whole a very positive legacy. 
Um, I'm not a Methodist myself, but I do teach at a Methodist college through university. And I guess uh, perhaps the the ignored question here, and I've got to ask it, ask it being British, why the British working classes? Well, uh, amongst other reasons, um, there, uh, why did I choose to study that? Mm. Uh, because we have a lot of raw material to work with. Um, there was a, 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 a David Vincent and John Burnett, two superb British historians, collected a bibliography of the British working class autobiographies. They found 2,000 of them. Some of just a few pages in a manuscript in, in somebody's attic, and of course, some that were published and, and, and uh, by, by mainstream publishers, and some published by local printers. Um, and what I basically did is I, I read through most of them one way or another, because they contain a lot of information about reading habits. This is what, you know, uh, when British working people wrote their own history, they said, this is important. This is something you have to know about me. These are the books that shaped me, okay? Um, so that is an invaluable resource. Now, you know, with, with other cultures, uh, uh, it's much more difficult to find that kind of source material. I've spoken to historians uh, of the non-Western world, made them say, we, we can't do this sort of thing. Right. Because the sources simply aren't there. I'm not sure that the sources are not there. I think if we look hard enough, uh, we may find, for example, among South African workers or uh, uh, workers in, in textile mills in Bengal, that uh, yes, we find a similar impulse toward self-education. I wouldn't you give know, up on it. I actually first became aware of your work maybe 10 years ago, um, and it was through Noam Chomsky. Uh, he, he mentioned your name. I don't know if you've spoken to him. Uh, we, I only uh, actually was in the same room with him once. It was at a seminar at, 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 uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and for some reason I didn't introduce myself. I'm sorry. I, I felt, perhaps I felt a little shy. Uh, but uh, uh, yes, what he said about me with my book was very kind. So when was this? When were you in that room together? Oh, I think it was about seven years ago. Right, right. Fairly, not, not, not so long ago, fairly recently. Yeah, so I think he's mentioned you several times when people have asked about um, this, this forgotten tradition, and he always refers to your great tome. And I do, of course, discuss the, the British working class anarchists who very much were part of this, of this uh, self-education movement. And yes, obviously, he, would, he has you know, sympathy with that. Yeah, well, he, um, as I'm sure you know, talks about, he, said, he, he always defers, I think, to, uh, to your authority on, on the British working classes. He says, you know, I've, I, he says I've read uh, Jonathan Rose's uh, great book, um, and I don't know Britain as well, apart from reading your work. But he talks about similar trends with the, what he calls the, the I guess not him, but the, the literature, literature calls the factory girls of, you know, in, in Boston. Um, so I, I imagine that there are parallels there. Would you say that there isn't anywhere near as much literature for that tradition for those people either? Oh, I think this tradition is equally strong in the United States, okay. uh, the, the, uh, the self-educated working class. Now, the problem there is uh, uh, there's no language problem studying the British working classes. They're basically speaking English. Uh, if we talk about the American working classes, they are from a profusion of different immigrant groups, ethnic groups. And it, and <laughs> it'd be almost impossible to study them together unless you knew all these languages. 
So what I right. think it, we, we will see, and I hope we will see, is we'll have individual studies of uh, Jewish workers, Italian workers, Portuguese workers, whatever, and the institutions they created. And they did create these institutions, no mm. question about that. Uh, uh, study groups, uh, libraries, and so on. Um, uh, and then maybe put the whole mosaic together. Yeah, I, I mean, one of the lines that got me when Chomsky describes this history is he says, you know, my, my family obviously came from you know, Jewish working class roots. Um, and he talks about, I think, his uh, great uncle, or perhaps it was just his uncle, owning a newspaper stand in New York. And he said, that, you know, these people some of my extended family are were some of the most educated, well-read people I ever met, much more so than anybody I met in Harvard, MIT, 50 years you know, he spent in these top institutions. That's quite a claim. It is a quite a claim, but I understand where he's coming from. And in some, many respects, it's true, because uh, let's face it, as academics, we are forced to study rather narrowly certain topics. That's a professional necessity. Uh, if you, uh, or in, in, in English literature faculties, you are the empty imperative is to produce monographs, which means you focus on one thing in a given book. Well, that's not the way ordinary readers read uh, books. They, they experience the work as a whole and uh, uh, they, uh, they, it's a very individualized response, which doesn't just get you very far in the academic profession. So there is a kind of divide mm. there. And um, the uh, 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 autodidacts tend to be, um, uh, yeah, they're, 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 their education is uneven. There are certain subjects they know well and others that they don't. But also it can be very broad in that respect. They don't respect disciplinary boundaries. Uh, they read promiscuously, in other words. And um, uh, they may, may read anything that comes to hand because often the supply of books that's available to them is somewhat limited. Um, but but yes, in, in, in the process of that, they, they, can, uh, they can acquire uh, an education of great breadth, perhaps more so than, than uh, academics can. So just to put this into perspective for people, how many books would you say that you read in order to write the intellectual life of the British working classes? Well, as I mentioned, there, there were 2,000 autobiographies in yeah. this. You know, I read most of them, not all, but most of them, basically anyone I could get access to. Now, a lot of them were in little, you know, county public record offices in scattered throughout the UK. So what I did is I got a Brit Rail pass and a pair of running shoes and a laptop computer and a backpack and just whistle stopped all over Britain and eventually covered, covered most of them. <laughs> um, now, are they books? No, some of them are just a few pages long. Um, some of them are complete books, but and, and yeah, I'd say half of them contain no useful information for me, but that means another half did. And so basically that's, that's, uh, that's what, I, what I covered. I think that's, uh, 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 you know, it's a, it's a good research method. Simply take a body of literature that you know, you know yields a certain amount of historical information, read everything there. And, um, uh, and then you can, you, you know, you can draw conclusions from it. Could you give people uh, an over overview of your key findings and perhaps the what what you what you think are the most important takeaways for a modern audience and the collective amnesia that's uh, kind of dawned on us? Well, 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 a few things. First of all, that uh, this traditional canon is indeed very liberating for people who have been denied educational opportunities. Secondly, the traditional canon for the working classes is indeed very traditional. 
That is to say, uh, their literary tastes tend to lag about one generation behind the tastes of more educated middle-class audiences. Uh, in, in, in the 1920s and 1930s, the workers were not interested really in literary modernism, for example. Uh, and the reason is that, that uh, uh, an appreciation of modern or contemporary literature costs money. I mean, you're buying books that are new. Uh, uh, you have to be, keep up with the, the literary reviews. And um, uh, whereas if you're reading older books, they're out of copyright. Uh, they're very cheap, or just pick them up on a used bookstand, and and there was every tiny working class community had a used, you know, a bookstall. Uh, we can get them for next to nothing, and so again, their their reading tastes tend to be somewhat old fashioned relative to the uh, to the uh, to the middle classes. Um, I also, uh, uh, though this may have been a hasty conclusion, uh, concluded that by creating a scholarship ladder, by creating more educational opportunities. Uh, the this uh, self-educated strata within the working class was skimmed off and precipitated up into the middle classes, and therefore the working class lost after World War II. Let's say this uh, 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 self-educated element, but that may have been too hasty, and I, that's something I might want to revise if I had to rewrite the book today. Uh, I think especially the internet has now made self-education. Um, uh, accessible to everybody in an unprecedented way. Yes, there's a lot of rubbish on it, but there's also a lot of important dissident, you know, voices that that I think need to be heard, uh, voices from the grassroots. And uh, uh, so I am very much, on the whole, think the internet is a good thing. And I very much conclude that attempts to censor it or, or, or get rid of so-called misinformation are ill-considered because much of this misinformation is in fact true information. Yes. So could we talk about the specific books, the books that were most popular among the working classes? Uh, certainly the, uh, the English classics, uh, uh, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, uh, uh, George Eliot, and so on. Um, also American literature, I think because, let's say, until 1891, there was no international copyright which meant, of course, that American publishers could steal Charles Dickens, but British publishers could steal Edgar Allan Poe and Mark Twain and publish them very, very cheaply. And as a result, uh, uh, the uh, uh, American literature was available cheaply to the Victorian working classes, and it was very accessible, and it did contain a kind of a democratic spirit. In many ways, they admired the United States, uh, they viewed it as a more classless society. It's not, of course, it wasn't, but that was the image that came through in the, in the literature. And certainly if you read Mark Twain, you have this, this vista of a country where you can just lit, lit out for, light out for the country and, and go to the frontier and live a free life. And I think that they found very, very appealing. Uh, so that's, uh, uh, that is something they, uh, uh, they very much responded to. Uh, of foreign literature, literature in other languages, not so much. Uh, but to some extent, and, and uh, there's a very good book by Edith Hall, which has just come out recently. Uh, there was a working class audience for the classics, Greek and Roman literature, in translation, of course, usually. Uh, but uh, um, uh, this is something that, that they, they, uh, they responded to. And um, uh, so that as well, I think, I think uh, uh, found an audience there.
Did working class Brits ever buy books, or were they almost all library and kind of mutual improvement societies? They rarely bought new books, let's put it that way. Um, they often bought used books because you could you could literally tuck any bookstalls. I mean that you could pick it up for that 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 cheaply. Um, uh, obviously, to a large extent, they relied upon libraries, both public libraries or libraries organized by the workers themselves, which was also fairly common. Uh, they relied upon uh, you know, exchanging books, sharing books with other you know, workmates and so on. And um, collective reading, one person reads a book aloud to, aloud to others. Um, uh, so yeah, certainly uh, they, they did not subscribe to literary reviews, so that wasn't a guide, guide really a, a guide for them. Uh, they were much more guided by their workmates. You know, what did they recommend? And, uh, and their own personal tastes. And do we find any particular professions reading the most? Obviously, these professions where you can, I guess, what, what was it? The, uh, the, the, the weavers, where you could just plant a book down and uh, read while she worked. It, it certainly helps if you, if you, certainly the more skilled workers obviously were tended to, tended to, to, to read more. Um, uh, those who were in quiet workspaces, which might include shepherds. I mean, you know, you simply, what, what do you do if you're a shepherd? You're sitting around much of the time and, 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 and uh, there's no noise. If you're working in a very noisy factory and anyone, I mean, I should, if you visit an industrial archeology span site, and they actually have a, a, a preserved factory there. Ask them to turn on the machinery. It's absolutely ear splitting, and 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 makes makes it makes reading almost impossible. However, uh, take another culture: Cuban cigar workers, who it's a factory, but there's no machinery there. It's all done by hand. Uh, they would hire a what's called a lector, who would read aloud to them from books or newspapers while they were doing their work, and that's possible. In that kind of a, of a of a work environment, so it does depend a lot on first of all uh, which strata of the working class we're talking about, and uh, uh, and and their work environment as well, and whether um, uh, uh, you have um, uh, uh, free time in your workplace. Uh, there was a a, a uh, 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 cooks on Pullman cars in the United States. Now, obviously, at meal times, they're 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 through this intense bursts of work. Between them, there's not a lot to do, so they could read during this time. I frankly don't think that a worker today in an Amazon fulfillment center has much time to sit down and read the books he's sending out. Yeah, yeah. Although I guess that's why podcasts are so wonderful. Right? You can kind of do a university degree whilst you commute to work. This um, this picture that you paint. One feels like it has rather stark consequences or repercussions for the Marxist view of the working class, the traditional view of kind of false consciousness. Could you say something about that? I, I, I can. First of all, uh, I deliberately tell the book Working Classes, plural, uh, because I think there was much more identification with particular trades among the working class than an identification with the class as a whole. And there were certainly gradations that within that Within that, within that class. Uh, I think we have to be very careful about using the term false consciousness because it can be used in a very facile way to try to explain why the workers don't buy into what we're trying to sell them. You know? 
Uh, it was used very commonly, I know, amongst Marxists in the United States in the 1960s, with, when the American working class was rather conservative, conservative in its outlook. But you can see why they were. Um, um, uh, uh, capitalism had made possible working class affluence. Uh, they enjoyed political freedom. They enjoyed religious freedom. Uh, they enjoyed consumer goods, all of which they could not enjoy in communist countries. They enjoyed independent trade unions, which of course they couldn't have in communist countries either. Um, the um, uh, many American workers were from countries like China, Slovakia, uh, 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 Cuba, which were under communist domination, and consequently, you know, they they re realized what it was all what all about. So, in that sense, I would say the American working class was very sensible in rejecting the Marxist uh, 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 formulas. I don't deny that certain groups can sometimes work against their own interests, okay? Not right, but we also, we always have to ask the question, whose consciousness is false here? Is it the workers who have a false consciousness or is it the Marxist intellectuals who have a false consciousness given the way Marxism is often worked out in practice? Yeah, there's just something very, uh, <laughs> well, quite humorous about the picture of, I guess, even even today, right? You look at Brexit, you look at Trump, and people are all too willing, uh, kind of liberal intellectuals, um, often to make the either explicitly or implicitly the false false consciousness point. And if they could only read your book and understand that these people were more well read than they are, almost almost certainly, it, it's just quite it's it's quite hilarious. Um, it's it's, it's you can't help but feel that there's a, you know, a patronising element to, you know, you don't know what's good for you. And if you did, you wouldn't have voted Brexit and Trump. And whilst that, as you say, it could well be true in many cases, it's a, somewhat of a, a uniform um, prescription for something as complex and, uh, yeah, bitty as you know, lived history, right? Right, right. Well, I can, I can recommend a book by Paul Embry called Despised, uh, it's why the left despises the working class. Yeah. He's, a, he's, a fire, he's a firefighter. He's a Labour Party activist, but also what we uh, represent of what's called the Blue Labour movement, which basically uh, upholds, uh, 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 shall we say, left-wing economic values, but also rather conservative social values. And uh, uh, he says there has to be more awareness of what things like uncontrolled immigration are doing to traditional working class communities. Mm. Um, uh, putting a great strain on, 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 on social services, for example. And um, uh, I, 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 was, I was very impressed by his book, actually, and could recommend it. Perhaps to flesh out this picture, it would be good to talk about the news consumption of the working classes as well, because one of the things, I, I looked at your book many years ago now, but one of the things I remember, one of those great tables that you have, is... Uh, you know, just how how much news people read, how many newspaper, how many different newspapers they read. Could you talk about that? Well, it, it's it's um, uh, it was limited because, of course, it, at, at, in the by the early nineteenth century, uh, the newspapers are taxed, uh, they're stamped, and that makes them terribly expensive. And the whole idea, of course, was to keep them out of the hands of the working classes. But they read them either by simply uh, uh, collectively buying them. You know, a dozen workers will, will club together and buy one copy and then circulate it around. Or some of these papers, of course, simply um, uh, published illegally without without the stamp. Now, of course, that by the mid-century, that's done away with. Um, uh, yeah, though there is a um, um, 
uh, uh, certainly there's, there's a lot of consumption of popular newspapers and, uh, and the BBC later on. Um, that said, I think there isn't a lot of awareness about what's going on outside of Britain, frankly. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, we mentioned, we talked briefly about the importance of local communities. And they were, if you read these autobiographies, you get a incredibly detailed picture of the communities they grew up in. They remember everybody. Uh, they remember which shops were on which street, that sort of thing. But the, and the world beyond that, they are largely un unaware of. Uh, there were attempts to inculcate uh, loyalty to the empire, you know, Empire Day celebrations, for example, in the schools. It went over the kids' heads if they were working class. They had uh, really, they probably couldn't have found any of these colonies on a map. Um, in the years leading up to the Second World War, again, there's virtually no awareness of what's happening in Europe. Um, uh, simply their, 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 their geographical horizons are, are much more limited, in part because they might spend their entire lives uh, within a certain community and, and rarely travel very far beyond that. What, so, so we've spoken about the news um, and perhaps the, the restricted access to um, the, the mainstream. What about the, the workers' press? Well, they had, uh, uh, there's the Daily Herald, which is a, a daily paper. There are, um, I, I think what they read more were the popular papers like News of the World, like Reynolds News, which tended to be, might be politically fairly radical, but also rather sensational, frankly, um, as the tabloids are today. Um, <laughs> So uh, 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 it's question. I wonder how much that they really, you know, raise the political consciousness yeah. of, of, of of the working classes, or whether uh, they were simply, for the most part, they were more concerned with the sensational aspects of, of journalism. When I talk about the self-educated workers, I tried to calculate how many there were. Uh, I focused on Sheffield in 1918 because there was a survey of the of the workers done there. I said most, maybe one out of six, were reasonably well read uh, and sometimes impressively well read, but the others, uh, uh, no. So it's we're talking about a significant but still fairly small minority. Could you talk about those British anarchists? Yes, um, uh, and of course they it, that was part and parcel of their whole ideology that the workers could educate themselves and organize themselves outside of traditional structures. Well, yes, you can, um, but the anarchists were very small in number, uh, and were never. What years are we talking? So uh, people. Well, have we're, we're talking about the, let's say the the Edwardian years before the First World War, when they were probably at their height. Um, uh, they were concentrated to a large extent amongst the Jewish immigrants, as and uh, uh, but I would say never became a mass movement. Um, I mean, most British workers remained attached to the Labour Party or to some extent as well to the Conservative Party as well. Um, so uh, uh, while I'm sure, you know, anar anarchists today or anarchist scholars are very interested in the anarchist movement, they're projecting their own <laughs> interests onto it. It's just, it, just just, it just didn't um, uh, 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 really take root, I think, in a big way amongst the working classes. Um, it, it did emphasize self-reliance, but I think it was uh, 
as C.S. Lewis said, the problem with self-reliance is that not all selves are reliable. Uh, and, and to educate oneself takes a great deal of initiative, self-discipline, uh, and, you know, uh, frankly, most people prefer to work in very structured educational environments. Do we know uh, what books those, those anarchists read, whether they read the, uh, the founding fathers, as it were, of anarchism, the Bakunins and the Kropotkins? Oh, oh, oh absolutely. And Rudolf Rocker, who was a, a, yeah. an, a, 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 an anarchist who, uh, although he was actually a Gentile, he learned Yiddish enough to edit Yiddish newspapers. And of course, Jewish workers were very impressed by all this. <laughs> Uh, and uh, and certainly he played a role in recognizing Yiddish literature as a legitimate literary form, and played you know, and uh, 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 as important in that respect. So um, uh, yes, these these uh, these uh, anarchist educators did try to expand the tastes of the of the working classes. It, it, obviously, the big emphasis on anarchist literature itself, but not limited to that. Do you have any thoughts on the anarchists in Spain uh, and kind of pre-Civil War and how they were able to generate this very close-knit structure? They, they had they had libraries uh, not only in Spain but they many of this have ended up in Argentina where they also founded you know li- workers' libraries as well uh, uh, and obviously they did they did great work in in workers' education. Now. Um, it was, uh, uh, you know, I guess I raised the question, well, even if they were anarchists, how tolerant were they of different points of view? Uh, if you read Orwell's Homage to Catalonia, uh, he says, among other things, well, you know, they, they've, they've shut down every Catholic church in Catalonia, and in fact, which he favors, actually, by the way. Uh, and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, uh, if anarchists believe in freedom, shouldn't people be free to worship in a Catholic church if that's what they want? Well, of course we know that they didn't extend that freedom to, to that. And it uh, anarchism could very quickly degenerate into basically mob rule, uh, which uh, was not perhaps the kind of free utopia that they had originally promised. So in, in that sense, my, my feelings about anarchism are, are, are uh, uh, while I admire to many respects their libertarianism, their willingness to, to criticize the system, uh, their re- reliance on thinking for themselves, there can be problems with it as well. Do you think, after all these years of being you know, steeped in reading patterns, reading habits of ordinary people, do you think you've been able to glimpse something that allows you to make a or something that informs your own prescription for what a good education is, given the context of, you know, the smartphone, the internet, uh, the TV, um, you know, video games. Um, it, I guess a cynic or a pessimist might look at your work and think, well, that's fantastic. That's uh, not what I expected. But let's face it, there was nothing else to do. So, you know, even people who aren't, you know, you know got an IQ of 130, yeah, they're probably going to pick up a book. There's nothing else to do. Um, but it, so I, I, I don't want to uh, yeah, throw too much at you. Is that is that how you see it? There is the danger of having, you know, 500 channels on cable television, nothing to watch. Uh, there is the uh, 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 sort of a sensory overload that can um, uh, distract, especially young people, from uh, 
the doing serious reading. I see this amongst my own children, to be perfectly frank, um, where they are so clued into social media that they become not only wrapped up in trivia about, about celebrities, but um, they become very conformist. They are fearful they'll be unfriended. They're fearful that, that uh, they will be attacked online by a Twitter mob. And um, uh, the result is there are many ways afraid to think for themselves. Um, and, I, and I observe this amongst my students as well. Uh, I think that the whole spirit of the 1960s when students were very much concerned with being nonconformist and dissenting in many ways is, is largely gone. And in, 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 uh, I think there's much more of an emphasis upon fitting in with the group. And, um, uh, 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 and, and again, focusing on, on, on inconsequential in, in things that celebrities are involved in. So yeah, there is, there is, there is a, a danger to that. On the other hand, there's always another hand, um, there is uh, online, we have many groups devoted to literary criticism. These are ordinary readers uh, giving their opinions about books, debating them. Uh, there are thousands of these, of, these, of these websites. And some may be devoted to particular genres like science fiction or romance and others devoted to classic literature or whatever. Um, we no longer have F.R. Levis's or Lionel Trilling's, critics that everybody respects and have authoritative views. Instead, we have, shall we say, a much more populist alternative where everybody's contributing to the conversation. That's not necessarily a bad thing, I think. In fact, if anything, it shows these readers are very engaged. What do you think... What do you think schools and teachers can do? I mean, I'll give you my own depressing anecdote. I, I went to uh, Cambridge University um, to do a master's and lived uh, with trainee teachers. I lived right next door to the education faculty. Um, I was, well, I would like to say I was surprised, but <laughs> I, I wasn't that surprised by how um, how poorly read the supposedly the you know the 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 best teachers, right? The people that are going to Cambridge to do their teaching qualification. Um, and you know Cambridge, uh, I think Oxford too. They put an emphasis on if you if you come here, you should really be going into the state se uh, state sector to teach. You shouldn't be swanning off to private schools. So these are the people who are meant to be you know at the forefront of I guess um, social mobility in a way. And I remember speaking to a history teacher um, who didn't know who Charlemagne was. Um, oh dear. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But when you're looking at that problem at a macro level, um, what would you like to see? Because I think our countries probably suffer from many of the same maladies, right? And, and I mean, yet, yet a better pace for, for teachers would probably help. I also think that greater autonomy for teachers would help. For example, well, how is literature taught in American schools? We have the so-called Common Core, one of Bill Gates's ideas, which I think was a been a disaster, because what it basically means is you ha they have to buy these enormously expensive anthologies, which only give them snippets of great literature. There's almost no works that are being read in their entirety. Uh, so principals can say, well, we're reading, you know, we're reading Shakespeare and Milton and Louise, and Louise May Alcott and Mark Twain. Yeah, they're reading a few bits of them, but they're not reading anything in a very sustained way. I would say throw out all the literature textbooks and instead 
give students, give, not loan, give them paperback copies of classic literature. The teacher can choose what they want, okay? They can teach whatever they feel they feel passionate about. But the students should sit and read the whole thing from beginning to end. And then when they're finished, they can keep it. They can put it on their bookshelves, okay? I think that will do, uh, 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 could do enormous good, especially in communities, relatively poor communities, which are underserved by public libraries. Uh, that would do an enormous uh, uh, benefit of uh, in encouraging the reading habit over a lifetime, which is of course what you want to aim at when you teach literature in the, in the state schools. There has been talk for a few years about throwing out GCSEs, dispensing with the, um, the, the, the qualification that people do when they're 15, 16. Um, do you have thoughts about assessment? Um, the, uh, people perhaps on the more progressive um, side of education will say that they don't want children to, um, to feel arbitrarily um, stymied or you know, we, we talk about you know, a, a letter is, or a number is something that you use to assess the quality of meat. A human is much more complex than that. Obviously, that's putting the point somewhat reductively, but uh, I do feel that there's something to that. Okay, I do think I mean, you can criticize the SATs, which of course are the entrance examinations for American colleges, because you are, if they're largely multiple choice questions, you're filling in little bubbles. And sometimes if you really think about these questions, there's more than one correct answer. And uh, um, um, I'm not sure it's, 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 it's that much of a measure of real intelligence. I do think we should be assigning a good deal more writing to students than we do. Um, I think in, in, in Britain, at least until recently, the uh, students were, a uh, high school student was doing twice as much writing as the American high school students. Um, and, uh, and then you get you know, uh, uh, the papers criticized by your teacher, which is probably the best way of learning. Uh, I'm very much a believer in response papers. If you assign a student a book, get them to write maybe just 500 words about it. But if you do that, they have to read it and they have to think about it. And you have a starting point for any kind of class discussion. Um, and I think if you do that week after week, they develop both the reading habit and the writing fluency as well. Um, so uh, I think that's one that's that's one reform that we could we could we could put into place. It seems, I guess, on a common sense level, that if you if you are a teacher, and I've you know, I've taught many subjects um, over a period of uh, three or four years, uh, varying age levels, and it, I think any teacher can tell you that if you have a vast range of ability. Um, being told to differentiate within that classroom, that's fine. You can do that to a certain extent. But if you've got someone who is very able, right, say they're in the top 2% for IQ and someone who is in the bottom 2%, um, often it's very hard to, 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 well, to teach both of them, to put it bluntly. It, the common sense method would be, look, let's take these people who are right at the top, put them in their own um, school, not just a different class, not just setting it, but a, a school with a ethos and um, something that allows them to do as, fulfill their potential, basically, do as much as they possibly can. And then let's take those people who are really struggling, 
put them in the same class. Try and remove stigma. We're not going to, you know, call, we're not going to call this you know, the the top set and the bottom set. And let's try and get these people up to the highest standard possible. Let's fulfil their potential. And yet that is somehow um, seen as uh, very elitist. I think by today's left. I think actually that makes sense because if you have a student who is struggling and you put them in a, in a classroom where other students are excelling, you're only going to in, increase their feelings of inferiority. Uh, uh, they're going to be, it's going to be obvious that they're, they're, they're lagging behind. And I think, yes, if students excel, they should be given a chance to excel. And certainly the alumni of the, of the British grammar schools generally spoke very highly of them, felt they were, they were an, an important element. But I also found in my own research that uh, the post-war British students who went to secondary modern schools, as to say those that were not special, that were not academically elite, where you basically ended your education at 15 or 16, were reading at an astonishing level. And, and this was reading they were doing not for their schoolwork, although they did, they did some of that, of course, but reading they did, they did for fun. Uh, uh, there they are reading, uh, 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 they're reading poetry, they're reading novels and so on. Um, I think that even if, if you are going to track students, you can still, even those in the lower track, uh, uh, di direct them toward, uh, toward literature and, and serious reading. And they may have to start at a lower level, of course, you have to, you have to uh, uh, approach them on their own level. But uh, uh, if you spend the time for it, that then you can you can certainly bring them up. One other thing I propose is that in every school, there ought to be a, a class a session hour set aside, where the students have to go to the library, and they just read. You can read whatever you want. You can't look at a screen. It has to be a real book. Uh, you're free to choose that. But we, uh, it's all quiet. You focus on the book, and I think that too will inculcate the idea that reading is not a chore. It's something you actually can enjoy. Just coming back to to the the book, would you say that this was this this way of life, reading the the canon, as it were, was it something that people thought about, um, or was it just very normal to have read Homer and Marx if you were a Welsh miner? <laughs> well, uh, no one is born with a knowledge of the canon. That's the one thing. It's something obviously you you do pick up. Uh, they might pick it up through recommendations. Uh, a, a fellow fellow autodidacts. Uh, they might pick it up because great authors refer to each other. And so if, if, um, uh, 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 a, a, uh, if, if John Stuart Mill talks about Aristotle, well, then you ought to go read Aristotle. And in fact, you could, if you do that, you can gradually reconstruct the entire canon because they all, it's, it's all internally referential. Um, so yeah, it's something that has to be learned, but I think also they weren't simply blindly following a list of a hundred great books, though those such lists existed. Uh, they were reading books that they actually responded to in a very passionate way. Uh, this, they, are, they are not status symbols. Uh, they are not conforming to middle-class intellectual hegemony. They are reading what is valuable to them. If you could, try and abstract out and say, well, let's look at uh, you know, society today, perhaps with, without the smartphone, without the internet. Do you think you, you would see people flock back to the TV? Um, if you could take out both 
Would people gravitate back towards books? Uh, would the radio become more prominent? Obviously, these are impossible questions to answer in any uh, precise detail. But what do you think were the most, um, yeah, the, the most important variables in contributing to this awful decline? Well, I would like to dynamite Twitter, certainly, but that's not going to happen. Uh, it's uh, uh, we have we we have to live with this with this new technology and somehow and uh, you know we have to figure out ways where culture can sort of coexist with it. Now, certainly in America in the 1950s and 1960s, right, we have television coming in. It's, it, it becomes ubiquitous, but at the same time, book re- purchases and readership is booming. Okay, and serious literature. Uh, you have uh, paperback, you know, a series of paperback classics like New American Library Anchor Books, which are uh, uh, huge business successes. And they're doing it by selling, again, cheap classic literature. Now, it's a part a function of the fact that uh, the higher education expanded enormously after World War II and create a whole new audience for this kind of, this kind of literature. But um, uh, it, I think it was also created because as a society at the time, we really valued the humanities. We genuinely felt that this was something that every educated person should learn. Um, during World War II, the, uh, uh, the colleges were recruited by the US Army to train up quickly military officers. Uh, they had to do it quickly, the war's on. And the Army nationally said, well, you know, we don't really want you to teach the humanities, because we just, we just want military officers. And the academics put their foot down and said, no, if you want a college degree, you have to earn it. And that means becoming a well-rounded, educated person. Now, we were fighting a war for national survival, but we still had time to devote to studying the humanities. Um, we are now being told that we don't have time for that. We're competing with China. We need to learn STEM. We need to learn uh, technology. And uh, all, and we can pu- push the humanities to the side. And in fact, humanities enrollments, which boomed in the 1950s and 60s, have now tanked. Um, uh, my own university has lost nearly half of its humanities faculty in, say, the past uh, decade, and that's typical, uh, by sheer attrition and, and, and loss of enrollment. So, um, uh, again, it, it is largely what a society chooses to value. It's not that we can't afford it, it's that we have, have decided to do, do something else, and uh, we have to have a reordering of priorities. Would you be in favour of uh, reviving the classics dramatically and teaching working class kids Latin and ancient Greek, or at least giving them the option of studying it? Well, okay, or at least, uh, if if not Latin and Greek, literally, which are tough subjects to learn, let's face it. Um, Certainly the classics in in translation. Uh, The Odyssey is the greatest comic book ever written. Uh, it, it's 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 absolutely absolutely gripping, and we certainly have many cases of, you know, in in America, te- drama teachers in, in inner city schools, uh, 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 staging Shakespeare in high school, and and the kids absolutely love it, uh, because Elizabethan England is really a lot like an inner city in the United States. There, it, it's lots of music, uh, lots of crime, okay, very colorful characters, okay. English, which is not quite standard English, but in its own way is very expressive, um, uh, very flamboyant personalities. And so, sure, they, they relate to it very well. In fact, it's right now a, apparently a great production of Mary Wives of Windsor up in Harlem, you know. So, so um, 
uh, yeah, I think this can uh, this this can and does uh, relate to uh, 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 can you know be something that speaks to inner city kids. Much is made of the the shifts that we're seeing, especially for young girls and uh, mental health. This compared to despair mentality, where they can go on Snapchat, and um, I'm sure you've seen it with your with your kids, um, grandkids, where you can apply these filters and make it makes you look more beautiful. Um, it's quite terrifying, and some people o- overdo the the effects. They think it's just it's just different, right? In the same way that um, um, you know, going from the the horse to the car was different. Um, humans adapt. Um, f- now there are, there are specific points to point out here that actually we do see mental health seemingly getting worse, especially for young teenage girls. The the rest of the data it's 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 muddy. Um, but from what you've seen as a college professor and your own uh, research, and I guess in your own personal life, do you have a do do you lean to like maybe it, maybe it depends on uh, the 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 side of the bed that you roll out. But do you lean to the optimist side of uh, where we're going, or the pessimist view that actually this is a paradigm shift in technology, and we've got these giants in social media in Silicon Valley who are basically devoted to weaponizing your attention, and this is something brand new. I'm pretty pessimistic, actually, uh, not not irredeemably, but I think we can turn it around. But yes, the uh, the tech barons have designed the system so that it's addictive, uh, so that that kids keep coming back for, for more and more and more. And um, uh, this is something we have to take steps to curb. Now we could do it in part by simply ba- banning smartphones from schools. If you just you just can't turn them on, period. Maybe you even have to tur- t- turn them over to the teacher at the beginning of the day and pick them up at the very end. But they are but they are a distraction. Uh, of course, I speak as someone who doesn't even have a cell phone. My wife calls me a lovable Luddite. Um, but um, uh, uh, it, it's, uh, uh, you know, many people predicted that television would be addictive. And in some ways it is. Uh, but we had to learn to turn it off. We had to, uh, um, uh, we had to learn to uh, uh, not remain glued to the tube at all times. And... You can do that if you, again, set strict rules with, with kids and limit their consumption and also introduce them to other things. You know, all right, yes, you have to sit, you know, if, you, if you're going to be in school, you, you can sit quietly and read a book, but you can't look at a phone. It's as simple as that. Um, and then indeed you may be able to get them to break that habit. Um, I want to uh, get on to a few audience questions before we, we close up. Um, Alan Jones from Patreon asks, um, are you familiar with Eric Hoffer's self-education and his book, The True Believer? If so, do you have any comments? Yes, I think he was a, a, a model of an autodidact and in fact, very, very perceptive. I think that the, uh, with The True Believer, it was a great psychological study of political dogmatism. And we see this type all over today. He was very far-sighted in that respect. Um, but uh, it's interesting that, that Hoffer has fallen into disrepute, even by the 1960s, I think because he was viewed as low class. Uh, he, uh, 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 he was not an academic and um, uh, was discounted on that, on, on that respect. But I think we should be reading more of him. And Matt Gonzalez from Patreon asks, 
What do you think of disclaimers attached to movies and books? For example, HBO attached the disclaimer, uh, a disclaimer to Gone with the Wind, uh, and the disclaimer was, uh, it denies the horrors of slavery. What does Professor Rose make of such attempts to contextualize cultural artifacts? I would say they're belaboring the obvious. Uh, I mean, we all knew, of course, it, it was, it was uh, the Gone with the Wind, uh, you know, romanticized slavery. We were all very much aware of that. Um, we have to, you know, realize that works from the past often represented, you know, attitudes we would now, now regard, you know, rightly regard as reactionary and, and unjust. It doesn't mean that these works are valueless. Uh, yes, ancient Greece was based upon slavery. Of course it was. Um, but it also uh, produced some absolutely great ideas, including, of course, democracy. And I think one has the thing, you know, it's funny, I sometimes say that progressives really have a, a lot of problems with the idea of progress. In other words, we have to accept that human beings are not going to create utopia overnight. It's going to happen step by step. And as long as a past civilization or a past literary work or a past work philosophy brought us a few steps closer to that just society, then it's worth reading Okay, for that reason. Um, and we can't simply say that uh, all of these are valueless because they don't represent progressive values circa 2021. Um, uh, so it, it's, it's um, there's nothing wrong with these disclaimers, I suppose, but I honestly don't, don't think that they're necessary. Okay, then let's go to uh, a couple of quick fire questions. What is your favorite book of all time? And let's do fiction and nonfiction. Ah, gosh. Um, if it's that difficult, you can. I'll, I'll extend the list to three. No, no, it's 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 a, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a fun question. I, I, I wish I, I I've always liked Homage Cataloni, even by by Orwell, even though the more I read it, the more questions, doubts I have actually about it. <laughs> Pardon me. Um, I teach so many of these books in, at university that I keep discovering new things about them and, and my, my feelings change. Uh, Lewis Carroll is someone I've been feeling more and more fascinated by as, as, uh, as time goes on. Yes, I do teach him as, as, as intellectual history. Um, uh, the uh, uh, Charles Dickens, Great Expectations, which I think is an absolutely, you know, uh, evokes childhood as no other book does, is uh, something I'm, I'm, really, I'm really very fond of. Uh, I'm terribly impressed by the Federalist Papers, which I think uh, avoided many of the pitfalls that utopian literature can fall into. Uh, so it's, it's uh, I have many favorites, difficult to point to one of them. What do you think is the most underappreciated either history book or historical document? Hmm. Uh, Underappreciated, good, good, good question. Um, I rediscovered Richard Hofstadter's The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And even though he was, he's been largely dismissed by more recent historians, I think he was onto something. And I think there is uh, a, a deeply paranoid tendency in American politics on, on both sides of the political spectrum, uh, which we now see coming to the fore. And it's one reason why American politics is now so deeply divided 
because each side is totally distrustful of the other uh, and, uh, and thinks in rather conspiratorial terms. Um, so in that respect, I, I, I think he was actually very farsighted in a way that there was far less of that in 1964 when he actually wrote the book. Yeah, there, were the, there was the John Birch Society and so on, but for the most part, uh, American, and I've you know, done some research here, American political discourse was far more rational. It was far more tolerant. Uh, you had people of different political persuasions actually coming together and reasoning together. Um, you had pundits like David Susskind on the left and William F. Buckley on the right, who would have these talk shows where they would invite political opponents onto the show and would actually have a civilized debate with them. Now it's just a slanging match. Now they're not, they're not debating, they're, they're simply uh, 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 you know, heaping abuse on each other. Uh, and I think that's a terrible loss. And we are, gonna, we are paying already a heavy price for that. Thank you very much for, for talking with me. I've really enjoyed uh, our discussion. And, thank you, Matt. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Um, I would like to obviously promote the latest edition of your book as well. Um, when will that be out? It's out, it's uh, out. both in the okay. US and the UK. Uh, it's, it's not, nothing much has changed. I did write a new preface to sort of you know, update uh, what I think is its relevance to contemporary politics and society. But it is out and in both and I believe you are a sensible person, so you're not on Twitter. Um, but if in people fact, wanted I, I have, to... I have, I have no Twitter account, so if, if there's a Twitter mob out there and wants to attack me, sorry, guys, nothing to attack. <laughs> but you can send them my way. 